in this group of people, basically a group of believers that believe in a literal supernatural resurrection of Jesus from the dead. I thought a way to express that would be to say our faith is such that if we were to take a time machine, if that were possible, and go back to the very point when uh, Jesus came forth from the grave on that Sunday morning so long ago, that we would have literally seen him walk from the grave, that we could have touched the wounds that he had, that we could have seen his countenance and said, this is the Son of God, this is the Jesus that we knew. I believe it is important for us to choose what we will serve and what we will believe in the coming days ahead, not because of myself, because I have reached an age where I have grandchildren, but I'm concerned about the world that they live in. I'm concerned about what their world will be like. And I see the world going in a number of different ways. Perhaps we will go the way of science, and in a way, science will be our God. Some people might like that. It will be very effective and efficient. But I think it's good to remember that if science is our God, it is a God with no pity. If you are sick, if you are useless to the society, you would be eliminated. If you perhaps disagree, it would be not logical for you to remain because you would uh, gum up the works, you would slow down the progress of the whole, and so you would likely be eliminated as well. Science is a God that has no mercy, only logic. Or the world could go another way. It could go the way of the uh, cultivation of the uh, use of every and the freedom of every desire of the mind and body. We use the word tolerance today, and tolerance is a good thing in certain, uh, with certain parameters, but consider a world that your children might go into where no desire, no matter how degraded or bestial, is accepted. I think that gives us pause, does it not, to live in a world such as that? And so I present a world where the ministry of the gospel and the gospel of Jesus Christ has great influence based on the literal resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So that you might know where I'm coming from and where the church is coming from and where, where we ought to base our beliefs, beliefs, the resurrection does certain really important things. And I wanted to talk with you for just a minute about those today. Our text is from the very first gospel sermon that was ever preached. These are the words of the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after the Passover feast upon when Jesus was crucified. And I want you to notice what uh, Peter is saying to that first group of 3,000 converts. He says, verse 22 of Acts 2, he says, Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death 
because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray today that we might not simply remember the events preached by the apostles and preserved for us in Scripture, but Father, we might begin to think about the meaning and the ramifications of our faith in those truths. Father, help us to do that today, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last night, a dream of perfection was dashed. The Kentucky Wildcats came to the NCAA tournament with a blemishless season, no losses. They thought they might go 40 and 0, 40 victories and no losses in a national championship. But in the last few moments of the game last night, those hopes were dashed. They wanted to be unconquerable, at least for the 2015 season unconquerable and not able to be beaten. In the world of boxing, there's only one heavyweight champion who has fought his entire uh, record as a boxer and never been defeated. Uh, Rocky Marciano, a heavyweight champion in the 1950s, finished his career 49 wins, no losses. He was, at least during his career as a boxer, unconquerable, unbeatable. Since the Declaration of Independence in 1776, the United States has uh, experienced 239 years, if my addition is correct, of being a nation that was not dominated by any other nation. We have been, in a sense, unconquerable. I bring up this to get our minds to sort of grease the wheels. I was thinking about this this idea of unconquerable because I want to Add that word to another word that seems so different. Unconquerable seems strong and hard, and the word love seems soft. What would it be, or what would it be like to have unconquerable love? Well, go along with me as I give you this concept. Jesus, as he walked on the earth, was the living expression of the love of God. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. I think if you thought about it, hopefully you'd agree with me that Jesus is the living expression of the love of God from God's heart. And how that love was so strong, so powerful, so unconquerable that it was able to pass through every obstacle. Think about the obstacles, uh, the rejection of the people who 1,500 years were taught to be ready for him to come. The Messiah. He came. They couldn't understand him. They they rejected him finally. His 12 apostles who were with him for two years saw the miracles. When at the end, under pressure, they left him. One betrayed him. One denied him. And the others just ran away. Those who had hailed his coming only a few days before as he entered Jerusalem in the triumphal entry were much the same people who, as he traveled the Via Della Rosa, cried, Crucify, crucify, crucify. They killed him. His body was placed in a borrowed tomb. And if that had been the end of the story, he would have been simply another obscure teacher 
that had been a victim of the power of Rome. But that was not the end of the story. He came forth from the grave. Think of this. The power of God, the living power of God was so strong that it burst from the grave and is with us today. Influences our lives today. Speaks to us today in a thousand different ways. The love of God was so powerful that it burst out of all the bonds that held it. And go a step further, unconquerable in such a way that it now conquers. Think of the things that it conquered for us. And very briefly, let's think about those together. The unconquerable love of God through the cross and its validation by the resurrection conquered the condemning power of sin. Now, I know that sin is an old idea. Not uh, sort of laughed at and chuckled at by a lot of people. But if you've ever come close to close with sin, face to face with sin, you know what it is. You know what it can do. Sin is the violation of the will of God. It is the violation of your conscience. It is the violation of what you know to be right. It is the, the idea of might over right. Of material over spiritual. We know what sin is. The believer says that they are responsible to God, that God's will cannot be violated, and when it is violated, there is sin, and when there is sin, the Bible teaches unavoidably, even though it doesn't come across very good in our advertising, even though people don't like the idea, the Bible says that when there is sin, there is judgment. Inevitably. Inevitably. When there is sin, there is judgment. You may not like that, but that's what the Bible says. Jesus eliminated the condemnation of sin through his death on the cross and its validation, his resurrection. Sin's judgment has no power over us. That is the Christian gospel. Listen to Colossians 2.13 as Paul gives us some words that make Word pictures very quickly. Colossians 2.13, which should be on the screen pretty soon. When you were dead in your sins and in the, the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us and that stood opposed to us. There's an interesting picture here that it's talking about the law and how we're breaking the law, all the things, the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not lie, and on and on. And we're breaking all of those laws. There are none of us that have not broken those laws. And it's as if God has made a list and said, this is what you've done, this is what you've done, this is what you've done, this is what you've done. And that list is wiped out. The King James says it's blotted out, and that's really a good translation. In those times, paper was scarce, and the ink that was used was not acidic. It did not bite or eat into the paper. It just rested on the surface. And so many scribes would use a sheet over and over again. And what they would do when they needed that sheet was to take a, a sponge or a wet cloth and what they could do would simply wipe away the writing. And you have a bill for a new car. Wouldn't it be great if you could just take your sponge and... Right, wipe away. The mortgage on the house. Just take your sponge. And, well, this is talking about your sin. Your violation of your own conscience. Your violation of what you know of the will of God. Sin, because of Christ's death on the cross, blotted out. Wiped away. That's what 
the scriptures are talking about through the cross of Jesus and through the validation of the resurrection. goes on to say, this bill of uh, guiltiness was nailed to the cross. It was killed. It was executed. It's gone. And then it finally says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is a word that comes from the Roman Empire when the, the victorious general would bring the king of the land that he had conquered and the exotic animals and the treasures and he would parade them through the city of Rome and the people would, would acclaim him and shout and glory in him because of what had been done. It was very good for the soldier. It was very humiliating for the prisoners. But the, the idea is that Jesus has eliminated the power of sin. Simply this, so when you go out that back door, if you are a Christian, you can say simply this, I am right with God. I have a relationship with God. Not because I am worthy, but because my sin has been taken away. There is nothing between. That is the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Jesus destroys the condemnation that comes because of sin. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the sign or miracle that validates all that Jesus said about His purpose here on earth. As we walk from this house, when this time together is over, we can walk as men and women who are free of the condemning power of our sins. In our congregation recently, we have experienced the sadness and heartbreak of death in a very unusual and severe way. I could tell you the stories, but it would take a little too long. When Jesus was resurrected from the dead, He conquered the restricting power of death. I couldn't think of another word. That was the best I could think. Because the, the thrust of Scripture is that people live all of their lives in the fear of death. Is it not true? Why, when you go to the funeral home, to see someone there, perhaps to call on the family, the body is laying in a slumber room. A slumber room? They're dead. They're dead. We don't want to say it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to look like it's coming. We use plastic surgery and cosmetics and uh, uh, toupees and all sorts of things to look as if it is not coming, but it is coming. And we are deathly afraid of it. Jesus came and was resurrected to eliminate the fear of death. So that we can say to people in our congregation, you do not have to be afraid. Robert Milligan, a great Bible scholar, said that men and women fear death because of the pain and separation which accompany it, because of the mystery and terror which follow it, and because of the uncertainty of their condition and destiny beyond it. For those without hope in Christ, death is a sudden ending of all purpose and meaning. Is it not? All that you were, ended. All that you might have done, not done. 
David Gerald is one of the original creators of Star Trek. He's an unbeliever. He doesn't believe in God. And he had this to say about death. He said, life is hard. Then you die. Then they throw dirt on your face. Then the worms eat you. Be grateful it happens in that order. Kind of encourages it, doesn't it? Another person that did not have faith said, I'm already dead, I just have to wait for my body to realize it. Isn't that what we're doing? We're all dying, aren't we? What hope is there in facing death if Jesus is not resurrected from the grave? There is none. When Jesus resurrects from the grave, he brings life and immortality to life. Hebrews 2.14 says in their, excuse me, that he might by his death destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by the fear of death. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 10 says, Our Savior Jesus Christ has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That is our faith. That is our stand. 1 Corinthians 15 and 3. Paul says, I preach that Christ was uh, Christ died on the cross according to Scripture, that he was buried, and that he rose again according to Scripture. And very quickly, he starts citing all the witnesses. Christianity is not a sentimental thing. It is a factual thing. The apostles would have known nothing of uh, believing something because it was a nice story or because it made us feel good. No, what they said was, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1, he said, We tell you about what we have seen with our eyes, what we have touched with our hands, what our hands have handled. They were eyewitnesses. Those were the people that preached the gospel in those days. Those were the people that saw the resurrection. At Arlington National Cemetery in Arlington, Virginia, is a beautiful amphitheater. It's all made of marble, very, very beautiful. In the steps on the eastern side is, I don't think I said that exactly right, is the tomb of the unknown soldier where soldiers marched 24 hours a day, seven days a week, guarding as sentries the place of their unknown comrade who has fallen in combat. Above the entrance to the amphitheater where the United States most illustrious and most humble soldiers have had their funerals is a saying in Latin chiseled there in stone. Forgive my pronunciation. It is dulce et decorum est pro patria mori which means it is sweet and right to die for your country. It is sweet and right to die for your country. I'm told that Horace said that many, many years ago, the Greek philosopher. Think of how many soldiers, if you were to stand there and look out, most of their graves marked by a cross, if you were to think of how they lived that, how they gave their life for their country, and it makes me think, because those symbolizing crosses are there, of how Christ died for sin, that it was to him sweet and right 
to die for you, for me. I have said that our church has experienced death on a larger scale. Death untimely and heartbreaking. And as I was considering that, I thought of a song that we used to sing when I was a boy at the end of the church service. That was when we sung it. Sort of a chorus. We didn't sing it at any other time. And I thought, that song, that chorus should be sung at the funeral. That song should be sung in light of the resurrection. You want to know what it is? I'm going to tell you. In fact, I'm going to sing it. Do you remember this? God be with you till we meet again. By his counsels, guide uphold you. With his sheep, securely fold you. God be with you till we meet again. You remember the chorus? Till we meet, till we meet. Till we meet at Jesus' feet. Till we meet, till we meet. God be with you till we meet again. That's what we're saying when the body lies in state here. It's not the end. We believe that Jesus resurrected from the dead and by the same power that raised him from the dead, we will be raised. And it is not the end. It is until we meet again at Jesus' feet. That is our hope. And it is a hope that no one else can give. Only, only Jesus. Jesus died was resurrected. Think how far he came to us. From eternal bliss and joy, he came down, 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 down into our world, hateful, jealous, angry, conflict-ridden, petty world he came and was rejected by those he had made and murdered and buried in a borrowed grave. Now that is quite a descent, isn't it? Don't you think God should have sometime in that descent have said, I am through with this pitiful little planet. I think I will stretch out my huge hand, my enormous hand, and simply crush it. It is not worthy. It is not useful. It is not good. But the power of God is sheathed in love. And the living power of God in Jesus burst forth from the grave. Our weakness, our hatefulness, our sin, our pettiness, our weakness could not turn away the love of God. It was unconquerable. Unconquerable. Jacques Picard and a Navy lieutenant, George Walsh, 
entered the Bathyscaphe Triesque in 1960 and went 37,000 feet down into the Challenger Deep. No one has gone as deep before. No one has even tried it. That is a deep, deep descent. But it is not as deep as what Christ has done to come all the way to the grave and then to burst forth from the grave as the living, living epitome of the love of God. Unconquerable and able to conquer your life and mine. Will you surrender to the resurrected Jesus? Will you truly surrender to Him? He has a path to take. I think if you stop and meditate, it is far better than any other path you might contemplate. Follow Him. Our Father in heaven, we ask you to bless us on this Resurrection Lord's Day. Father, we pray that you might help us to see, as we've not seen before, that we'd think deeply, more deeply than ever before, that we would be humble, more humble than ever before. Father, as we, as we turn from our way to his way and follow the resurrected Jesus. Father, we pray it in his name. Amen. Here, Shelby played the djembe a while ago. I don't know if you noticed it or not. I noticed it because uh, when I was in Africa, in Ghana, I bought that djembe and, and another one, a smaller one that goes with it, and a couple of uh, soccer shirts for the girls and a nice, colorful African shirt for me. But uh, I paid $35 American money for that djembe. Uh, at that time, a, a CD was the uh, Ghanaian dollar, and they were running about $8,000 to one. And so I paid $280,000 for that djembe. <laughs> it's totally worth it. <laughs> and I don't remember what the shirts cost. The other, the other djembe cost 25 It was smaller. But uh, the money that I needed to buy those objects were in a giant paper grocery bag. And we were carrying giant paper grocery bags full of cash around to buy our $35 items. And it was, uh, it was exciting. Uh, by the way, y'all look marvelous. You really do. Nathan had an excellent uh, message last week concerning forgiving one another. And we're going to continue that theme this morning uh, in the Christian lifestyle with encourage one another, with encouraging one another. I really uh, enjoyed getting to dig into this subject this week, and uh, there's so much to be encouraged about, uh, and uh, I just wanted to share that with you. I love uh, youth ministry. Uh, I have always loved youth ministry and still do. It gives me a chance to do for a living what's very exciting to me, and that is to encourage uh, teenagers and kids, to encourage teenagers and kids. Even more than building a youth ministry or building a youth program, I enjoy encouraging and lifting up and building up teenagers and kids. And I enjoy sharing that ministry with so many wonderful adults who enjoy the same thing that I do, except they're, uh, they're way more spiritual than I am because than they do it for free, and I get paid. It is, a, it is a, an awesome opportunity and a responsibility. Uh, I think I got into this because I was encouraged by a, a minister when I was a small boy and a youth minister when I was a teenager, and, and then I went to Ozark Christian College, and there was something there that was a little different than a regular, Bible co than a regular college professor because these Bible college professors uh, there at Ozark, and I'm sure other places, had the student in mind. It, they weren't there for the job. They were there to see 
students encouraged and built up and led into ministry. And so I loved that, and I wanted to continue that and, and share that. Um, it was my opportunity uh, this year to actually need some encouragement, and you guys provided it uh, in, in, in droves, especially my nurse wife. Uh, I, I got a chance. I got a chance to, to see. Uh, I, I have always had this pride, uh, undeserved pride, of of not feeling old, uh, of feeling like I'm still 30, 35. Well, for about two months, I got to feel old this 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 past summer. Uh, I think God needed me to feel that way. I, I remember Harold Handback uh, walking down uh, as he was getting on in years. Harold would walk down from his Sunday school class, and I think Dick Watts actually built that rail out there for Harold. Uh, when Harold was having some trouble walking all the way from Sunday school into the sanctuary. And almost every Sunday I'd pass Harold and we'd speak a little bit and he'd, and he'd say this almost every week. He said, don't get old, Steve. It's no fun. <laughs> and I would say some encouraging words to Harold. And, and then for about two months this summer, I got to feel what it's like to be old. <laughs> I was in a, a walker for a while, as you remember. Uh, I, I got uh, Stephanie and Kathy driving me around in the van with a handicap parking sticker on it at CIY so that I didn't have to walk the, the, the mile over to the service where the kids were riding their scooters. Uh, it, was, it, was an awesome, it was an awesome summer, really was, for uh, a chance, a chance to have a, a little insight, a little insight. Uh, there are examples all around us in the year that we've had here at Osage about the need for encouragement. It's been a tough year, it really has. We've lost so many people and we've had so many illnesses and so many deaths and so many uh, difficult times that our members have uh, experienced. And I truly believe that uh, Osage has stepped up and has been the encouragement that those families and people needed all around us. Uh, we lost so many. My mind immediately went to uh, the fact that just recently, uh, because because in, in my family we were very concerned, with, especially Kathy, with uh, Beverly Rousey and, and, and her loss. And then I began to remember it was Beverly who had cancer and defeated that cancer, but then also uh, encouraged Kathy's mom. And, and it was before Beverly, I remember Janina Johnson's mom had cancer and defeated cancer and was actually encouraging Beverly Rousey. And there was a chain of events where people who were loving each other and encouraging each other and helping each other to gain strength through that time. Um, we saw this uh, also in the, in the Joplin tornado. It was so huge and so massive that it wasn't just Missouri and it wasn't just Joplin. It was the whole country that came together to help Joplin. And in that time, Joplin is still needing encouragement, but they have reached out. And whenever tornadoes happen other places like Moore, Oklahoma, Joplin people were there to help them. And then the people in Moore were here in Sand Springs and North Tulsa uh, to help us and that chain just continued to happen and of course uh, as, as Carrie mentioned a while ago we are remembering that that uh, that time in April 20 years ago where the Murrah building was destroyed by that uh, by that bomb and the whole world stopped and the whole United States stopped to try to give encouragement to the people in Oklahoma City and and so many of those still need encouragement but those people have since reached out and they were there at 9-11 to encourage those people in New York City. And that encouragement spreads and that encouragement is contagious and that encouragement is needed. This, uh, this just a few weeks ago, we had our chance to, to go down and build our 12th or 13th house. I keep forgetting the number and I think that's a good thing uh, uh, in, in Mexico. And, and what does that do? 
Uh, there are thousands of people in Acuna, and that's one little town. There are actually thousands of towns. In that one little town, we help one family. What does that do? Well, it greatly encourages a family who can't afford food because they have to pay rent. It, it greatly helps a family who can't afford to send their little boy to school because they have to pay rent. Uh, it, but we also discovered that it not only helps one family by encouraging them and giving them hope, it also encourages a church. In those little Mexican communities, there are little churches all over the place because most of those people don't drive. Most, most, of, those, most of the people in these communities don't have cars. Uh, it's dirt roads, there's no plumbing, it's, 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 a, it, it's a poor neighborhood and they don't, and, and generally don't have cars. And so they have these little churches and these little churches also get to be encouraged by the fact that we go in in the name of that church and in the name of Christ build a house for a family that they have reached out to. As they reach out to this family, we are reaching out to them. Something happened this year that I want to share with you that uh, fits right in with the subject that we're talking about with encouragement. Uh, someone was given some money for any purpose while we were in Mexico, and they decided that they would give that money to uh, Pastor Betty. Pastor Betty is the, is the minister of the church that sponsored the family we built the house for. And so we... Uh, added some money to that a little bit and gave that money to Pastor Betty and then at, at, the, at the ceremony where we give the house away she spoke and she explained to us that she was going to take that money and fix her car because her car had broken down and that's the car that she used to bring the blind and the deaf and the, and the, and the sick and the people who couldn't drive uh, to her church services. And so by being in Mexico in one little neighborhood with one little house, one little church, we have the ability to encourage uh, all of those people by the fact that you guys have encouraged us to go and to build. Now, this word encouragement that we're talking about, uh, there's a Greek word for that, and it means encouragement. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's an old joke from my Greek 2 class back in Bible college days. <laughs> Notice, however, that that English word encouragement does have the word courage right in the middle of it. Courage. Uh, there's more to it than that. There's more to it than just courage. It also refers to the fact that someone is being called alongside of, that a person is being called alongside of. And generally, the person who's giving the encouragement, according to this word, is calling to their side someone uh, who needs encouragement. It refers to those it refers, this word encouragement refers to those who are going out of themselves to build up someone else. In fact, the Holy Spirit himself, this word refers to the Holy Spirit as the encourager, the comforter, the guide. I want to share with you uh, an if-then statement from the scripture. We're going to get into the scripture part of our message in, in just a second. Uh, but I want, I want you to be thinking about the if-then statements. There are tons of these in the Bible. If then if you will be my people I will be your God uh, there, are, there are so many ways that God describes to us how his relationship will be in an if then statement so I want you to look at Philippians if you want to look it up in your Bibles Philippians chapter 2 verse 1 starting there and if you want to, uh, to check out my, uh, my scribbles there on the page I want you to notice as I, as I read through here it says therefore if circled Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, think about that phrase for a minute. If you have any encouragement 
from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. Think about those words, if, if, if. I want to share with you uh, uh, the idea of a rhetorical question. Because I believe that there's a little bit of a rhetorical question in that word, if there is any encouragement in Christ. It seems to me that as Paul is talking to the Philippians and he's saying, uh, he's, about to, he's about to finish the statement with then, but as he goes into this, if there is any encouragement in Christ, it seems to me that he's talking to these people in terms of this is a rhetorical question. The answer is yes, there is encouragement in Christ. Yes, there is encouragement in Christ. I want to share with you another rhetorical question just to kind of get your, your mind moving in that direction. In Romans, the last verse of chapter 5, the first verse of chapter, chapter 6 in Romans, Paul is telling the Roman people that uh, there is grace in Christ and that this grace is a free gift from God and that God uh, loves to pr provide grace for us. That's what God is all about, providing grace for us. And then he asked this, I think, rhetorical question. He said, verse 1 in chapter 6, Shall we then continue in sin so that grace may abound? That's kind of biblical sounding. Let me break it down for you. Shall we keep on sinning because God loves to forgive so much that he loves it when you sin so he can forgive you? Shall we keep on sinning because God loves to forgive sin so much that he loves it even when you sin? And the more you sin, the happier God gets because the happier he can become loving you more and more. I believe Paul is being that silly and that, and that rhetorical because the answer that Paul gives them is no. <laughs> it does not make God happy for you to sin so that he can forgive you more. Yes, God does enjoy forgiving our sins and God does enjoy that process of bestowing grace upon us. But that is not the reason that God bestows his grace upon us because he enjoys sin. It would be as if... Uh, a, a fireman enjoys saving people uh, or an ambulance driver enjoys saving people so much that they go out and start fires and cause wrecks on purpose so they can save more people. Uh, that would be as silly as God loving us sinning so much that it makes him happy when we sin. This rhetorical question, if you have found encouragement in Christ, then go to the next slide. If you have found encouragement in Christ, then we have instructions. Then make my joy complete by, notice this, being like-minded and having the same love and being, again, one in the spirit and of one mind and do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. If you, if, if then, if then you have really been encouraged in Christ, then make his joy complete by sharing that encouragement. By sharing this like-minded spirit, having the same love, and being of one mind as Christ who encouraged us, share the encouragement. This sharing of encouragement can be simple. <clears throat> How many of you have been in a quick trip store? be easier to say how many have not ever been in a quick trip store we we're from oklahoma we we live at quick trip uh one of the one of the things you'll notice and i'm sure you have when you go into the quick trip store is that uh they greet you when you walk in the door if they see you they greet you and it's is it jason is that training Are you, yeah <laughs> okay that's part of the training uh 
I think it's kind of cool. I like it. I, I don't mind at all being greeted as I come in the door and people notice my, 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 my presence. Uh, it is, a, it is a, a small thing, but uh, wouldn't it be awesome if the church could live in that quick trip mentality? Not just in the church, but in the world. If people get into your sphere, if people get into your presence, a look, a smile, a greeting, uh, a recognition, uh, an encouragement to whoever, uh, instead of being in our own head and ignoring the world around us, we have that quick trip encouragement where we go and just make a point to recognize people's presence in our lives. Uh, there's another uh, store downtown Tulsa, the Rib Crib store in downtown Tulsa. Uh, go ahead and pop up the first slide that I, that, or the, that next slide. Uh, when you go to the restroom at the Quick Trip, I, I discovered this while we were eating there one Sunday afternoon. As you walk down the hall, uh, uh, there are restroom signs. Now, normal restroom signs, like this one, easy to understand. But then, uh, but then you you get to the you get to this sign. Uh, go, yeah. Uh, this is a little more clever. You got to stop and think about it for just a second. Uh, uh, a little bit more clever. But but then at the rib crib, here's here's what you see when you go down the hall. Uh, this this is the one you see. It says chicks. Now, what's really nice about this is they have the the other sign right next to it. So if you're not really sure, because <laughs> because because a chick is a is just a baby chicken, and you don't know if it's a boy chicken or a girl chicken. Uh, so, so if you're wondering, but in American slang, a chick is a girl, and so uh, and so that could be nice or not. But uh, we'll 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 say it's nice. Uh, we'll say that this is a term of endearment. A chick is a cute little bird and a cute little girl, and it's a term of endearment. And there on the bathroom door, uh, this door is for the chicks. And so before we go to the next slide, I want you to kind of guess where we're going with when we go to the men's side. Uh, if, if you got your guess, Rooster, yeah, that's, that's what I was guessing when I walked down this hall. Go to the next slide. For the guys, you got... <laughs> Chicks and pigs. <laughs> now, now that's not very encouraging. <laughs> or for one, for one, it is. When we meet people, we want to have this attitude about us that we are finding a way to be encouraging to them, not discouraging. Uh, it's a it's it's as simple as a kind word, like, and the fact that we, we notice them. I notice you. It's, it's as simple as that. Uh, I, I can still remember my, my, my preacher, uh, his name was Davey Barger, and one day at church, and I was like 14 years old, and he said, hey, nice shirt, Steve. Why would I remember that now? But I do. He said, nice shirt, Steve, and, and it's something as simple as that. It's as complex as mentoring, where you take one person and you pour your life into them over a long period of time because you're encouraging them to rise up in Christ. As simple as a, as a statement and as encouraging, uh, as complex as mentoring, it's praise. It's praise when a task is complete. It's positive exhortation when a task is difficult. It's kind of a better next time when a task is failed. Paul complimented the Athenians, and this is a strange, I don't know if you've read this story in, in the book of Acts or not, but Paul commended, uh, commended the Athenians in Athens, and here's why. As he was walking around the city, he started noticing idols to this, and idols to that, and idols to this, and 
wood statues and stone statues and all these idols. And you would think he would be burning up inside with anger at all these idols, but he speaks to these people and he says, hmm, I see you all are very religious people. Complimentary. He's complimentary to these these crazy idol worshiping people. I see you guys are, are, are very, I see you guys are very uh, uh, religious people. And of course, by religious, he means that they are seeking something higher than themselves. They're seeking something beyond themselves, but their religion is wrong. And he's not afraid to say that. But he said, and he goes on to say, but there is one God who's not here. He's the invisible God. He's the God that's made without hands, and he's the God that I worship. Let me tell you about my God. He's better than these gods because these gods are made with human hands and they are less than human because humans made them. And he goes on to, to describe the difference between false idols and the real God of heaven. And as, as a way of encouraging them, rather than put them down, he is actually building them up. It's a springboard to truth and to witnessing. But then Paul fails in the whole encouragement concept uh, kind of in a big way. You see, there was this young man named Mark, and he and Paul and Barnabas had been on a missionary journey together, and Mark decided to get homesick, and we don't know why he left, but he left the field, and he left Paul and Barnabas, and he deserted them, and he left. And then it was time for another missionary journey, and Barnabas says, let's take Mark. Paul says, uh, no, we, we don't want to take Mark. Uh, he left us last time. What's, what, 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 why do you think he, would, he, he wouldn't do it again? And Barnabas and Paul had such a disagreement over Mark that Barnabas took Mark and went on. Paul took Peter and went on, and they went their separate ways. Barnabas, henceforth, has been called the son, the son of encouragement. The son of encouragement. Those are the kinds of people that we need in our church. Sons of encouragement. People who give people another chance. People who, people who are willing to encourage those who we sometimes think don't deserve encouragement. So who needs this encouragement we're talking about this morning? Who needs this? Of course, the people we've been, just been talking, the people in grief, the people in loss, those, those people need so much encouragement, and, and we need to be there for them, and we are. But there are others. Uh, ministry staff need encouragement. Teacher Appreciation Day is today. Teachers need encouragement. Uh, we're going to appreciate all the teachers at 430. But in, 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 in another way, we need to appreciate those people who, who share the Bible with us in a, in a teaching kind of way. Uh, our board members need appreciation. Our sinners need appreciation for the fact that they are God's people, and we need to encourage the sinners. The saints need appreciation. Did you know that? The saints need encouragement. Uh, have, have you ever heard the expression, don't get tired of well-doing? Sometimes the saints get tired of well-doing. It happens. People get tired of well-doing, and we need to encourage each other. Don't get tired of well-doing. Don't give up. Keep up the work. God is going to bless the work. Sometimes our work gets discouraging and frustrating because it doesn't seem to be pushing, producing effort, or the effort doesn't be, produce results, and yet we're telling you, encourage those people. Even in the time when those efforts aren't producing, keep working. Keep working. Be encouraged. Be encouraged. The sinners, the saints, and then one last category of people, and there are many more, but the ones that I wrote down are this, the invisible people, the invisible people. There are people that nobody notices. There are people that just pass under the radar. These people need to be noticed, and these people need to be, and, and, and sometimes it's the, the impulse of the Holy Spirit that causes us to notice people that nobody else notices. Have you ever, have you ever seen that happen before, that for some reason God just puts it on your heart? I know Karen has. 
she calls me all the time at, at church or whoever answers the phone and said, I just feel like I, I need to be praying for somebody today. And sometimes she'll name them by name. And she's, uh, if, you don't, if you've ever been sick in this church, Karen has prayed for you. <laughs> and uh, I love seeing her down here this morning. I, I don't know. Is this your first Sunday back? Second Sunday back? Uh, Karen is Karen's praying for you, and she's encouraging She's encouraging uh, you to, to, to get better. She's, she's on that list of people who need encouragement now for her health reasons. But is the Holy Spirit talking to you, speaking to you, and encouraging you to, to seek out people who are invisible, people who don't get noticed? Uh, here's a warning. Here's a warning. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul, again, speaking to the Ephesians this time, says, uh, Fathers concerning encouragement here. He said, fathers, do not exasperate. That's a huge, impressive word. Fathers, do not exasperate. That's the opposite of encourage, by the way. Do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. Seems like those phrases conflict with each other. Don't exasperate your children, but bring them up in the instruction and discipline of the Lord. Here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Find a way to make your discipline encouraging, not discouraging. Don't beat them down, but lift them up. Don't beat them down, but lift them up. And so there's a warning to fathers. In your instruction and in your discipline, find a way to be encouraging. Here's an explanation. There's the warning. Here's an explanation for that in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4. Paul again says this. In your struggle against sin... You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, and you have and and have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement? To these people who were in a in a period of temptation, they were in a period of peace. Like so many people in the world today, there is a, a persecution of Christians. These people yet were not in that particular persecution yet. Just off the subject here, real quickly, we need to be praying for them. The people that are suffering persecution all over the world. Christian people are being chased out of Iraq, and people are being uh, killed for the for the sake of Christ. And it's happening more and more and more and more and more. But in these in this case, these people were not yet shedding blood for the cross. But he he asks them, "Have you completely forgotten the word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son?" I like the word encouragement here because it's what we're talking about. Have you completely forgotten the word of encouragement that God is our father and he treats you like a father? Have you forgotten that God will discipline those whom he loves? In fact, let me, let me instead of paraphrase, let me read on. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines those he loves. Some kind, sometimes encouragement in, involves tough love. Not just the kind word, not just the you look marvelous not just that's a nice shirt. Sometimes encouragement involves tough love. And unbalanced encouragement without discipline will produce a false self-esteem and a sense of entitlement that is not attractive on Christian people. We need to have the discipline that goes with the encouragement. Here's a riddle. Uh, what is the difference between ignorance and apathy? What is the difference between ignorance and apathy? I'll give you a second to think about it. The answer is, I don't know, and I don't care. Um, to be blind 
or, uns or unsympathetic to the needs of those around us who need encouragement uh, is either ignorance or apathy. Either ignorance or apathy. There are three things in our life that bring us to this level of encouragement. And up on the screen for that next slide, I want you to see the principle of threes. Uh, it, it's been determined. It's been determined that uh, when you call somebody to start something, uh, three is the best way to do that. They have determined that by using three, the first two establish the pattern, and the third one is the, your readiness. And so you say, on three, one, two, three. And you begin. Now you can spread that out. You can go one, two, three. And if you're doing it right, they've, they've figured out the pattern. One, two, three. One, two, uh, ready, aim, fire. Okay, same thing. On your mark, set, go. Kind of the same thing. I want to I share with you just three things that tell us how encouragement is supposed to happen. The first one is sympathy. The first one is sympathy. Sympathy is that sympathy is that thing that we feel for people. It's it's really as much in the head as it is anywhere else. But we we know their situation and we feel bad for them, uh, and we we know that it's 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 awful. And we at least take the the notice of their plight, and that sympathy is an important thing. But there's something beyond sympathy, and that's the next step, and that's empathy. And and, and I'm not describing these words that you don't already understand that empathy is that I've been there I know this feeling I, I feel it with you I, I, I know this feeling so when we have that sympathy for a person the next level above that is empathy where I feel it sympathy can be in the head empathy comes from the heart and then the last one that we have here is encouragement is encouragement encouragement comes through action Encouragement is us stepping up to do something about the sympathy that we have in our mind and the empathy that we have in our heart. This third step is God's way of saying, get out there. If you, if you have encouragement from my son, then share that encouragement with others. I want to take us back to that fact, Andy, if you don't mind, or Garrett, can you take me back to that first Philippians 1 slide? Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, and I made that a rhetorical question a while ago, and as I began to preach this, or as I began to write this sermon, I began to think, is it really a rhetorical question? And it, not always. When it says, if you have had any encouragement in Christ, it is a fact that not everybody has felt the encouragement that comes from Christ. Christ is available to all of us. But for some of us, we have not allowed Christ to come into our lives and to bring to us the encouragement that he brings. You know, it, it, is, said that, it is said that hard times will make us either bitter or better. Christ can make the difference between bitter or better. When Christ brings us encouragement, or when one of us brings encouragement in behalf of Christ, things that could have been bitter become better. There are those who have never felt the encouragement of Christ. 
There are those who have never reached out and allowed Christ to touch their lives. And this is our invitation time. And this brings us to that moment in time where we realize I am not, this is not a rhetorical question for me. I have never felt the encouragement of Christ. I have never felt the, the, the forgiveness of my sins. I have never felt the welcomeness that Christ has brought into my life. Is it possible that we are not passing along the encouragement because we have never felt the encouragement from Christ and so we have nothing to pass along? I want to finish with this verse, conclude. 1 Peter 3.21 says this, And this water symbolizes baptism, which we got to experience just a moment ago. This water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The pledge of a clear conscience toward God. Obedience to God in baptism provides for us a pledge of a clear conscience toward God. And the only way that that can happen is that Christ gives us the encouragement to know we are children of God. So at this time, I invite you, I encourage you to come and accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. Accept Jesus Christ as the one who will bring you encouragement. Let us pray. Our text for today, if you will turn to it, is 1 John 5, 3. I'm not even using the whole verse as our text, and I want to uh, read it together and then pray, and then we're going to come back to it so we might really understand it uh, just as well as we possibly can. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. Now notice, I want you to get the, uh, the emphasis of this passage. John says, this is love for God. Colon. He's going to define what love for God is. Now, think of all the definitions of love for God or the expression of love for God that you might have running around in your mind. So it's really important that John, the inspired apostle, is going to say to us, this, this is love for God. And then he says, to obey his commands. Now that is probably not the answer that you might have anticipated. But that's the answer that John gave. A missionary family, one of the first ones to go to the country of Korea, when it was basically a hodgepodge of idol worship and uh, uh, some things along that line, uh, found a home there and it was a sort of a simple house and uh, the first or second morning they were there, uh, there was a pot on the front porch uh, with a top and it was dirty. It looked as if it had been in the ground or on the ground for some time. And uh, the lady of the house, uh, Mrs. Missionary, came out and she opened the top of the pot. And the, the odor that came out was indescribably terrible. It immediately her, she became ill because of it and quickly put the top back on the pot. She said, well, this, this has been, this is some sort of a joke or, or maybe it's really an expression of the fact that the people around here don't want us here and they want us to go. And uh, so she, the little lady that worked for her that they had hired, uh, a native Korean, uh, she said, why don't you take this and just take it away from the house and throw it away? And the little, little lady said, no, 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 no. Oh, no, 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 no. And uh, Mrs. Missionary said, well, why, why not? And she said, oh, this, 
This is an expression of love and respect. This is kimchi. Well, kimchi is a delicacy in Korea to this day. Uh, as best I can describe, if you take a lot of eggs and uh, some goat's milk and uh, the other ingredients sometimes can vary, and you put that in this big pot and you put the top on it and you bury it in the ground for six months. I'm not kidding, for six months. And this is a delicacy. This is, I guess it would be something like thousand-year-old eggs or maybe something like that. Does that sound good to you? So, so now I want you to watch what happened there. Listen to what happened. Two cultures overlapped, didn't they? The people that brought that uh, secret or that uh, mysterious gift were trying to do something good. They were trying to welcome. They were trying to make the missionary family feel good. But because of their different culture, the missionary family thought, well, this is an insult. This is something bad. This is something that means get out of here. So it's where two cultures overlapped. And where they overlapped, there was some difficulty because of a difference in the understanding of the meaning of things. Now, that's what happens when the culture that we live in in this world, the things that you would talk about in a conversation with other people, the values. Now, those are the values of the world, but there are values that come from God. They are contained in His Word, and the church is supposed to have those values. So when those values overlap with the values of the world, there's a misunderstanding in meaning, isn't there? We just don't get it. Or we look at people from the world who have no Christian background. They don't get it at all. Here's a place where I think that comes through to us when the scripture says, God understands love in this way, obedience. Obedience. Now, we ought to be careful and say, obedience is a hard thing. It's a consistent thing. And you know how hard it is to be consistent. We can be really great for a day, really great for an hour, but for two days or three days, consistently do it. Think about your diet. You really diet good well for uh, two, three days, don't we? But then when it stretches into weeks, hmm, boy, that, that food really looks good, doesn't it? It's hard to be consistent, and yet God says, if you want to show me that you love me, Obey. Obey. Now, the culture of heaven is what the church is supposed to be. The scripture says our citizenship is in heaven. And so we think and act, and this is supposed to be true, we think and act in a heavenly way rather than in a worldly way. Let me share with you some passages of Scripture that get across this point that God's understanding of our love for Him is through obedience. Listen to this first one. Now let me set the stage. Here's Matthew, the Apostle Matthew, talking about the end time. You know, you've heard all the jokes about, well, they came up to the gates of heaven and there was St. Peter keeping the... Well, that's the picture. This is where we are. We're coming up to the gates of heaven. And we're wanting in. We want to get in. And listen to what happens. Jesus is describing this situation, and probably he ought to know, shouldn't he? 
Matthew 7.21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now watch these words. But only... Now we're narrowing it down, aren't we? But only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now listen to him explain it. He says, many will say, verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? But listen to this, verse 23, he says, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Depart from me, you evildoers. You see, we come to the gates of heaven with our idea of what God likes. It is usually a worldly idea. It is from our culture here. It has a few rules and that sort of thing. But when we come to the gate, when we come to the gate of heaven, Jesus is describing here, he says the culture of heaven is what matters. The laws of heaven are what matter. And we don't want to get into a situation where we are true to the world, but we're not true to God. Listen to, listen to the Bible emphasize this point. John 14, 15. If you love me, you will obey what I command. John 14, 21. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. Are we getting this? John 15, 10. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remain in His love. John 15, 14. You are my friends if you do what I command. 2 John, verse 6. And this is love, that we walk in obedience to His commands. Now let me return to our text verse. 1 John 5, 3. The scripture says, this is love for God, to obey His commands. This is love for God, to obey His commands. And what am I talking about? I'm talking about your life and my life. The life you live Monday morning when you get up. Let me describe your life this way and my life this way. Isn't it a life of continual decisions? one after another, on and on, day after day, week after week, where we make decisions. We say, I'm going to do this or that. I'm going to do what I believe the, the Word of God says, or I'm going to do what the world pressures me or entices me to do. And the next minute, time moves on a little bit. Another decision. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. I'm going to do what the world wants me to do. I'm going to do what God wants me to do or what temptation wants me to do. Day after day, hour after hour, minute to minute, we're making decisions about what we're going to do. What we're going to do with our money, what we're going to do with our time, what we're going to do with our home, what we do with our car. In school, we do the same thing. We make decisions day after day. How will I treat this person? How will I act? What will my values be moment after moment, hour after hour, day after day? That's your life, isn't it? That's my life, the life you're living. Is it a life characterized by obedience to God? Or is it a life characterized by obedience to what the world wants me to do? 
The reason it's important is back to that first passage we read. When we reach the gates of heaven, when we want to go in, have we lived by the culture and laws of heaven? Or have we lived by the culture and laws of the world? It will be really important at that moment. So, if it's important to God that we're obedient, if that really means a lot to Him, how do I do that? How do I conduct my life in that? Well, what do I do? What attitudes do I have? Well, I'm going to tell you. How can I love God through my obedience? The first thing we can do is we can surrender ourself, ourselves to the authority of His will. It is said that the infamous dictator, communist dictator, Joseph Stalin was dying and did not have the power of speech in his last hours. But as he was dying, he looked up to heaven. He looked up in this way and he took his fist and he shook his fist. His daughter, knowing him, said he was shaking his fist at God. That God had finally conquered this mass murderer. He was shaking his fist at God. Here was a person who would not surrender to the authority of God. Let me give you the opposite. Our example, Jesus, Luke twenty-two forty-two. Let me set the scene for you. We are in the Garden of Gethsemane. Tomorrow Jesus will be crucified. He is making his decision to undergo that terrible thing. And he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup, meaning the cross, take this cup from me, yet my, not my will, but yours be done. Now, could we take that as a, as a concept, as an attitude? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That is the heart of obedience, is it not? It's the heart of obeying God. Are you, and perhaps it's time, and maybe high time, to say, is my heart surrendered to the will of God? Or is it not? Is my heart surrendered to the will of God? You will never satisfy God's desire for love through your obedience until you surrender your heart to His will, to His authority. But there's something that's got to take place before then. We have to learn the content of His will. What is it that God wants? What is it that God's will is? If I don't know what His will is, how can I do it? How can I accomplish it? Well, it's not going to be accomplished as long as people in the church take tests. Students who begin to attend Bible college take tests where they think the epistles are the wives of the apostles. How's that? How about where to find the creation? My granddaughter Maddie is eight and she knows it's in Genesis 1. She learned it in Sunday school. How about the Sermon on the Mount? Where would you find that in the Bible? Possibly 
most even secular scholars say the most sublime article or the most sublime writing in the history of the world. Where would you find that in the Bible? A lot of Christians don't know that, much less people out in the world. Matthew 5, 6, and 7. As long as we don't know things like that, how are we going to know what the will of God is? That's why we have Sunday school. I don't like to get up for Sunday school. Well, (laughs) you can't know the will of God. Well, I don't like to read the Bible. Well, you can't know the will of God if you don't read the Bible. Let me ask you something. The other day, or tell you something. (laughs) The other day, I was doing something that is dear to my heart. Something I really love. I was looking at furniture with my wife at the furniture store. It was thrilling. No. But I did notice something. You know how in the furniture, a lot of nice furniture stores, they have the rooms set up. It looks like a room. And then here's another thing. It looks like a room in a house. So you can see what your furniture will look like. And so I'm looking at that, and I notice here's a, here's a bookcase with books in it. Or here's a table, and on the table is a kind of a nice uh, uh, lamp, and then some books leaning over there. And then over here's some books. Now, I like books. I've got a thing for books. I like those. So I said to the lady, I said, are these books for sale? Some of them were really old. She laughed. She said, no, 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 no. These books are just window dressing. Window dressing. Now, what is that? Well, that's a word that's uh, for what used to be when they had the big department stores and you actually went by the window and saw the things in the window. Well, that was the stuff they put in. They were props. They weren't real books a lot of times. They were fake books. You can even buy fake books to put in your... That would be really bad. But you can buy fake books to put in your, your, your bookcase if you want to. But they would be just window dressing. Now, here's the question I have. The Bible you have, the one that's sitting in your house, maybe the several Bibles that you have sitting around your house, maybe the one in your room, is that a real book? Or is it just window dressing? Just a, a decoration? Gets a little dusty, you have to dust it off. Is it a real book that you read? Or is it just, is it just window dressing? Makes me think of the preacher that called on the lady. She wanted to impress the preacher. And so sitting there, she said, she said, Dear, go get that book that mom loves better than any of them. Little girl came back with the... Now this, de- this is an old joke. Came back with the Sears catalog. What would it be today? I haven't thought about what would be. You don't see the Sears catalog anymore. But it wasn't the Bible. It wasn't the Bible. This little girl knew what was important to her. But she knew what her mother frequented. She knew what her mother used. She, she brought something other than the Bible. How are we going to know God's will if we don't know what he says? Well, we're not. We're not. And so it's our obligation to learn the will of God. To know the content of of his will, so that our Bibles won't be just window dressing. I know that it's hard to obey God's will. Because I can't always do it. I want to do it. But I feel better because the Apostle Paul said the same thing. I want to do it. I want to do it all the time. 
I know a lot of people that want to do it. They want to do the will of God all the time, but they can't. They don't. Sometimes they're tempted. Sometimes they're angry. Sometimes they're depressed or hurt, wounded feelings, and they don't do it. Sometimes they're tempted, sometimes tempted in a terrible way. They don't always do it, but they want to. And God knows we want to. And so he says, pray. Pray. We find it, we find it in Scripture so often. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 19, he says, Pray also for me that whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Now, let me tell you what he was saying. He knew that he was going to be in places where if he preached about Jesus, people wouldn't like it. Some of them would want to kill him. But he's asking his friends and fellow Christians, he says, pray for me that I won't be afraid, that I'll, that I'll have courage, that I'll speak out for Jesus even though I might die. He's saying, pray for me that I might do the right thing. Let me ask you, are there people praying for you that you might obey the will of God? If you're a young person, your parents are praying that. There are too many terrible things out there that could happen to a young person. And a lot of our young people are very smart. They're very intelligent. But they just haven't had the experience. If you don't know what a rattlesnake is, you might be tempted to touch it because it's so colorful and so strange. But if you've lived, you know what it is. You know what it can do. And you leave it alone. That's the difference, isn't it? That's the difference. We pray that God might help us to do His will. There's a great difficulty, a great difference in the difficulty of floating down the Arkansas River with the current. And another picture I want to give you, something I was watching the other day. We do that. Uh, Steve, our youth minister, takes people down the Arkansas River and you just kind of languidly float down. It's great, you know. It's going to be a picnic at the end. And terrific. I was watching uh, an Arctic icebreaker. Have you ever seen these boats? Great big boat, heavily uh, armored with steel. And what the boat does is it has a huge engine and it opens up uh, a way for other ships to go through the ice. And it comes up and the whole front of the ship comes up on top of the ice and goes BAM! And ice this thick is just crushed and knocked out of the way. And then it starts up again. It goes up over the ice, bam, again, and breaks the ice. And it, that's the way it moves through the water. That would be a jolt, wouldn't it? Now, that's a lot of resistance, isn't it? And brothers and sisters, you know that's what we have in the world. We're breaking through the ice. The world is saying, do this, and God is saying, do that. And we are fighting temptation. We are fighting pressure. We are fighting forces that we do not even understand. We know. We know the difficulty of it. And so we have to pray. We have to pray for God's power to do His will. The last thing I want to tell you is this. Now, now listen to what I say. This phrase, because I think it has a, a meaning that's will help us at this time. We please God through being obedient to His will by dying in the doing 
of his will. You, you got it right. By dying in the doing of his will. Listen to 1 Peter 4.41. You'll see it up on the screen. 1 Peter 4.1, I'm sorry. It says, Paul says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body. Can you see Christ on the cross there? Suffering? Can you imagine yourself nailed to the cross? Thirsty, so thirsty in the hot sun. Beaten, beaten nearly to death. Bleeding, suffering, but doing God's will there on the cross. Listen to Paul again. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. What was Christ's attitude on the cross? What was he thinking? What was driving and motivating him on the cross? Think about that. What was the attitude that he had? Peter is saying, therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. Someone that's given his all, that's, that's completely committed, he's able to deal with sin. He goes on to say, as a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life. Now stop right there. Everybody in this room, think about what is the length of the rest of my earthly life? You know it statistically? For some of us, it's shorter than others. But it's talking about your life. Your life at the market, in school, at home, at a sporting event, with your girlfriend, with your wife, with your children, day after day, decision after decision, one coming after another, what will they be? God's will or my will? God's will or the world's will? What will they be? You're living that right now. You're experiencing that right now, and you'll continue to experience it in your earthly life. He says, Christians do not live the rest of their earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Let me give you another passage real quickly from Luke 9.23 that describes as Jesus is trying to give us a picture of living for him, he says, Luke 9, 23, Then he said to them all, this is Jesus speaking, and through it he can talk right to us. Then he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. Get the picture? Like Jesus took up the cross, knowing that he would travel down the Via Dolorosa and die. He was going to die to do the will of God. Now, I'm not saying we're going to die, but I'm saying we're going to die a little bit when we give up something to do the will of God, when we give up popularity to do the will of God, when we give up material gain to do the will of God, when we, well, it goes on and on and on, doesn't it? Because we're willing to die, die a little bit, give up a little bit, deny ourselves a little bit to make the right choice in our earthly life that goes on decision after decision, minute after minute, hour after hour, day after day. It's, what we're, it's the life we're living. Does anybody know what the thriller in, thriller in Manila was? It's a name used for what many people say was the greatest boxing match in the history of the sport. Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier. Both had been champions of the world. 
and they were to meet there in Manila to settle who would be the champion of the world. Most people believe the temperature in the arena was 120 degrees. It's in a tropical place with thousands gathered tightly as they could be packed. And the two men fought for 15 rounds. It was the fight of the century. Many of the blows were so powerful that most would have been knocked out by them, but the two men remained on their feet and fought. Muhammad Ali, at the ending of the 14th round, sat down on the stool in his corner and said to his manager, this is the closest I'll ever come to dying. That's how bad it was. That's how much they were committed to it. That's how much they wanted it. They died a little bit every round. They died a little bit with every blow, but they would not stop. They would not give in. That is the picture that Jesus gives to us because we die to really live. We die to self. We die to the world to really live. Let me leave you with this, something from right out of my life. Two, two or three days ago, or more than that, I guess, I should say for two or three days, my wife and I lost our minds. We were out of our heads, crazy. And after three days, luckily, we came to our senses. We had been wanting to buy something that was way too expensive for us to buy. And we finally thought about it and said, well, how would we pay for it? And we said, we wouldn't. We couldn't. And we backed off from that desire. During that process, my wife was calling a real estate agent because she just wanted some information. It had to do with real estate. Uh, and uh, this lady was really business-oriented, really wanting to sell, and you know how that is, and just, just giving all kinds of options. And, and uh, my wife is the sweetest person. But after a while... A voice came from her. I could hear the phone call. And this voice just said, after all of these different offers, all of these things, she said to this lady in this voice that I only hear very rarely, <laughs> thankfully. She said to this lady, will you just do what I asked? The phone conversation very quickly terminated. I guess that lady said, sure, lady, okay. Will you just do what I ask? Can we think about God with all of our excuses, distractions, diversions, God watching our individual life? If he were to say, you know, how's it going? we just have a long story, wouldn't we? Just a long story of, and God might look at us real seriously, lovingly but seriously, and say, won't you just please do what I say? Won't you just do what I say? And you'll live. And you'll have joy. Why don't you just do what I say? Our Father in heaven, Lord, help us for our own good, 
for the good of the church, for the good of all those that we know, and to honor you. Help us, Father, to just do what you say. This is our invitation time. It is a time when we offer the opportunity for people to do what Jesus says, to come to him in faith, be baptized into Christ, to come and unite with the church, to come and make known their needs for prayer, whatever it might be. This is our invitation. Would you stand as we sing if you need to make a decision today? We, we wait for you. We long to see you. You come at this time.